Father, I thank you that in your greatness, in your sovereignty, you've counted each one of us worthy of the sacrifice that you've provided through your Son. I ask, Father God, as we continue this morning, that you would give us even more of an understanding, deepen our our knowledge, our trust, our faith in what you have done. I ask, Father God, that we would see more clearly what you have done for us. I ask, Father God, as we excuse the children to go to children's service, I ask that you would bless them with that same deeper understanding of who Christ is and what he has done. I ask, Father God, that you would be with the teachers and helpers. And Father God, they also would understand their role in passing on the the truth of the kingdom to the next generation. Thank you for this opportunity that we have today as the body of Christ to gather together and worship the only one worthy of worship. Thank you, Father. In Christ's name, amen. This is the first Sunday of 2020. A new year. So, with a show of hands, be very bold and brave. How many of you have already made New Year's resolutions? Not very many. Somebody's holding somebody else's hand up. That's good. (laughs) This is a time of year that we usually try to start things new. You know, it, it, it seems like the best time of year to, to make those big decisions in life. I know for me, I've made many New Year's resolutions. And many of my New Year's resolutions haven't made it to February, no matter what they were. I sprained my ankle the other day. And I was very frustrated. I spent a couple days in my recliner trying to keep it up, you know, doing the ice thing, you know. I didn't do a lot of ice, but I did keep it elevated and I complained internally a lot. One of the questions that kept coming up was, why? I have things I want to do. And I was, I was laying there, three o'clock in the afternoon came, and that's typically my time of the day when my body says, I'm done, and I, I nod off. You can even come to the office sometime, if it's between 3 and 3.30, if you look through the door, I'm very often going, it's sleepy time. Why me? 
I have things to do. And while I was laying there, I was thinking, this is typically where we go the first part of the year. I have things I want to do. There were a lot of issues and a lot of people I was also praying for during that time. I'm trying to understand having a son leaving on deployment. Hold my hand, those of you who have done that. You know, he's going into harm's way. I'm not real thrilled as a dad. I have a daughter getting ready to go to the Philippines alone on a short-term missions trip. She also informed us that part of what she's going to be teaching is, has to do with killing chickens and processing chickens. I, whatever. <laughs> there were some of you that came to mind. I thought of Chris. I hadn't seen Chris for a while. God, I love that brother. Where's he been? What's going on? You know, he's been sick. I didn't know that. We have all this idea inside of us. I have things I want to do. I have people I want to see. I have places I want to go. I have things I want to do. And that's where our New Year's resolutions come from, generally speaking. And life force to consider changing that. It's not a New Year's resolution thing. I'm not doing this because I want you to have a better New Year's resolution, although I want you to have a better New Year's resolution. It isn't so important what I want. God wants. I have been bought and purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. What matters is what he wants. And if our New Year's resolution is to lose some of this, that's fine. But maybe what's more important is whether or not I serve him in such a way that his name is elevated above everything. That his superiority is seen in everything I attempt to do. Wouldn't that be a different place to go? I also realized laying there very frustrated. I have work in the wood shop I want to do. I want what I want. And God kept going, you know, in the bigger scheme of things, you're going to be okay because you have me. And in that moment of realizing where I was with God, there's another thing that happens when we're really honest with that. And that is that in his glory and in his majesty, we come into his presence. And we've seen that so often in this study in Hebrews. His glory shows just who we are. I didn't like some of what I saw. As Reverend Andrews likes to say, 
I'm a black-hearted, wretched sinner. God shows up. And when God shows up, he wants to transform us. He wants to take us from where we were to where he wants us to be. Sometimes he allows things for us to go through that aren't comfortable, we're just not comfortable with. Are we okay with that? Do we still go, you are Lord. You are master. Or do we do what I tend to do? I want my way. We were talking in Sunday school this morning and the section that we're in in that class is angels and demons. And we looked at the passages about Lucifer's fall. And it struck me kind of hard. Because all of his statements, if you look at that passage in Isaiah, they're statements of, I will. I will elevate myself above God. We are stained by the same kind of sin. Because every one of us, in our own little way of, of sinfulness, wants to elevate ourselves to a position at least equal with God. And I'm more and more convinced that the underlying, bottom line, foundation of all sin is that pride. As we go into this new year, is it a New Year's resolution? It shouldn't be a New Year's resolution. It just should be a, a resolution that we're willing to not live there doesn't say we won't fall and, and scrape our knee or bruise our foreheads when we fall down. He is God. And I'm not. He is the master of the universe. And I'm not. Ah, that his glory would be seen. Thank you for the choices of the music today. Wonderful. This whole series that we've been in is about the superiority of Christ. We shouldn't begin in January and go, yeah, my New Year's resolution is to make Jesus bigger in my life. That should be every morning, every noon, every night. That should be all we're about, making him big and making us little. As we continue in this series in Hebrews, that's really what this is about. The symbolism of, of communion and that fellowship around communion is so vitally important to the life of every believer and to the life of the church. And it fits in really well with this concept of the superiority of Jesus. The bread and the juice symbolize the sacrificial death of Christ. We've heard that over and over and over again. But is that where we live? We hear and we understand at a certain level that his sacrifice perfectly and completely satisfied the just requirements of God's holy law. Ponder that. 
Every requirement of God's law has been managed, taken care of perfectly by Christ. As we've looked at Hebrews from chapter 1 all the way through to where we're at in, in Hebrews chapter 10, it's been a presentation of, of Christ's superiority over everything. And I challenge you deeply, try as best as you can to think of anything that Christ is not superior, superior to. There isn't anything. Christ's superior is, superiority is the, is the great theme of Hebrews, and it's, it's also the great theme of Scripture. And communion is a symbolic reminder every time we take it. Every time, it's a, it's a reminder of the superiority of Christ. What a good place to start. If you want to think of a good place, a starting point for the year, that's where we begin. There's a detail. I'm, I'm going to kind of back up a little bit in our study in chapter 10 of Hebrews because I want you to be reminded of a detail from Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 21. This is so cool to me. Maybe it's just because I, I study the Word and I, I look at all the linguistics and all of the, 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 the grammar and all that stuff that goes with it when I study, and I get excited about that. I'm seeing Zach get excited about that some do. It's so cool what God has done. Hebrews 10, 19. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God. Fascinating verses. There's one word in that, in that passage, that just strikes me so tremendously. Especially on the Sunday when we've, we've taken communion and in the beginning of the year and, and this whole concept of Christ being superior. The word is in verse 20. It's a simple word. New. It's, it's from the Greek prosphatos. Prosphatos. I'm not sure. Zach has better Greek pronunciation than I do. I don't care. What's important is that the literal meaning of that word was used literally as freshly slaughtered. Freshly slaughtered. I, I remember when, when I was farming and stuff, and we had, we had some cattle, we had some, some hogs, and we had some sheep. Sheep are one thing. Woo. Old brother Roy back there, he's a sheep farmer. <laughs> Insanity runs in his family. <laughs> and there came occasions when, when I would take an animal to market. And it, and it may not sound appropriate, maybe it grosses people out or whatever, but I remember there were hogs and sheep and cattle that I took them to the butcher and they were going to be prosphatos, freshly slaughtered. 
This is such an important concept for us because he says that we can enter the holy place by a new... So we could say, by a freshly slaughtered, and then he says, and living. What? And our brains just don't kite. What in the world? Freshly slaughtered. The two go together for us to understand what Christ has done and his superiority. Because, yes, he is the freshly slaughtered sacrifice. His blood provides that for us. He is also the living way into the the presence of God because he conquered death. Yes, he was freshly slaughtered. But he went to the grave and then he rose from the dead fully and completely conquering death. So based on what Christ has done, we have a place to go. We have access. Everything changed because he was slaughtered. Well, that sounds disrespectful to use the term slaughter, does it? That's exactly what the imagery is. That's exactly what happened. So based on what Christ has done, Hebrews goes on in chapter 10. And and immediately we begin to have exhortations. And those exhortations begin in in verse 22. It says, let us draw near with a sincere heart. Now stop there. This is written in such a way. This is not like, well, I kind of recommend that maybe you see this. Maybe you might consider drawing near. That's not how this is written. Let us draw near. It's, it's a definite, it's a command. This is what you're to do. And the reason you're to do this is because there was a fresh slaughter and a living sacrifice because he conquered death. Because of what he did, here's what you do. Draw near. With a sincere heart, in full assurance of faith having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Jesus did a work. Our response needs to match what he did. It needs to be a response that that matches in the sense that we respond appropriately to his sacrifice and his conquering of death. That is the basis for sincerity. Sincere there. It means genuine, without superficiality, hypocrisy, or ulterior motives. When we fully understand that what Christ has given us is a gift of grace, we do not have any basis for coming into the presence of God. And yet God gave us that access. Totally a work of his grace. So salvation then depends upon a person genuinely believing the gospel of Christ. Saving faith comes with a a commitment that is truly genuine. I'm going to commit myself to Christ. Wow. Okay, then you're saved. Is that where your heart's at? This, this whole idea of coming, of even being able to come into God's presence at any time was revolutionary. 
especially to the Jews, but in any religious setting, that's just a completely revolutionary idea. To be able to come into God's presence at any time, the Jews would have gone, no way. The other religions at that time and at this time, that's not the concept. You've got to do multiple things in some religious settings. You've got to do these works. You've got to do this. You've got to do that. You've got to do this before you can have access to God. And that's not Christianity. What Christianity is, is that Jesus Christ himself died for us so that we would have total access to God. We have access by grace. This idea was incredibly different, and it remains that way. Since the failure of Adam and Eve in the garden, all humans have been forbidden access to God. Remember, Adam and Eve had access. They could talk with him anytime they wanted. That changed when they sinned. But because of the sacrifice and resurrection of Jesus, the true believer has been given access. Not because of what they've done, but because of what Jesus has done. We acknowledge what Jesus has done. That's what we mean by having saving faith. Believers then can come with confidence because entrance to God's presence is provided by Christ's sacrifice. And it's also backed up by God's promise. There's no question about it. God said it would be that way. That's the way it is. Let's go on in verse 23. He says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Our hope, and it says the confession of our hope, that that is in what Christ has done. Our hope is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our our hope is in the, the promise that God gave of salvation through his Son. Not in something else. The confession of our hope is also how we live. So our hope is in Jesus and the work he has done. The confession of that is how we live. One of the distinguishing marks of a true believer, if you're watching somebody, if, if I've had a relationship with somebody over the years and they don't know Jesus and then they come to Christ, one of the ways I can tell they came to Christ is because there's a change. Something has changed. And how do we know it's changed? Because they start living differently. I did. I hated who I was. And liquor was wonderful until the next morning. It changed. It changed. My goodness, those years of hating being John Wayne in a 5'3 body. God. You said it. You. Thank you, brother. One of these days you'll walk into church instead of riding that chair. It, Love you, brother. I had convinced myself and others had been used by the enemy to convince me that I was a mistake, that things had been done biologically to cause me to be a failure simply because of my stature. Coming to Christ 
God said, no. That's how I made you. It was almost, there was one point in, in going through that where it was almost like God said, na, 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 to all those who say otherwise. It sounds childish, but it is so real. God made each one of us exactly the way he meant us to be. I still have my hair. You're working on losing more. Okay, sorry. God made it just that way. Love you, brother. That understanding came through knowing Christ. That changed how I lived. It didn't just change my attitude inwardly. It changed how I lived my life. I already knew that I could get in the face of big guys and many times they would just turn away because nobody had ever bothered to do that to them before. Every once in a while that didn't work out real well. But So that wasn't the change. The change was that I knew who I was who I really was. And it, it led to understanding that there was a purpose for me to exist. I'll never be six foot four John Wayne. And that's probably a good thing. But what I do know is that I'm a five foot three sinner who desperately needs Jesus Christ and he came and died for me and there isn't anything greater than that. And now, this side of salvation, I have a purpose. There's a reason for who I am. Jesus provided that entrance. The true believer has been given access. That's our hope. So when a believer comes to Christ... What's believed, you know, because even the demons believe and they shudder. The confession of our hope is that I live my life because Jesus died for me. I believe in something specific, something real, something superior, and it's Christ's death, his burial, and his resurrection. And in that, Connected to that is that I discover that I have access to God because my sins have been forgiven. Forgiven by God. And when when we are forgiven by God, our inner man has been cleansed and cleaned up on the inside. So in this sense, a believer is no longer living in condemnation. I no longer condemn myself for simply who I was. I don't need to. This work of cleansing comes from God, and and it's completely able to satisfy the holy requirements of God's justice. So so there's a, a cleanliness inside of every believer. The sin problem has been taken away. Doesn't mean we all just quit sinning all of a sudden. That would be great. There's also this idea of change. For me, the greatest change was my attitude about who I was. But there's also other changes. What's important? What's valuable? What we pursue? 
So there's a change because God has cleansed the believer. But then there's more. Think about Titus 3.5. He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. There is a transformation that occurs within a person's thinking, actions, and affiliations. Once I got saved, there were some people I didn't hang around with anymore. There were better people to hang around with that I enjoyed more. In salvation, then, there are, basically, we begin with two specific things that occur. First, the believer's sins are covered by the blood of Jesus. Secondly, the believer is transformed. There's an internal change. A believer views life differently. Outward changes begin to appear. Every believer continues to be transformed while in this life. It doesn't stop until... Christ takes us home or when He returns. There may be times when that that transformation, those changes, don't show up real big. It might be difficult for us to humanly detect. But because this is God's promise, the transformation of true believers continues until death or until Jesus comes back. Holding fast to this truth then of conversion and transformation, is what we're to hold on to. That's two basics. There's a third thing that happens at the time... i got to quit wandering, sorry. A third thing that happens at the moment of salvation. So those two things happen instantly. One of them began instantly and continues, the transformation. The third one happens also instantly. When you, when you truly believe, and God is the one who determines whether that's truthful or not, that third one is that you are immersed. Sometimes we use the term baptized, but it's, it has the idea of being immersed fully into the body of Christ. And when we use it in this context, we're not talking about water baptism. The Bible uses the terminology baptism, baptized, in many different ways. The terminology simply means to be immersed fully. It's like taking a a cup and you're going to wash the cup and so you stick it into the sink of water and it is fully immersed inside and out. It's the basic meaning behind baptism. Baptized. So at the moment of salvation, you are baptized into the church. Every true believer is inserted, immersed, fully engaged within the body of Christ. There are no exceptions. Every believer becomes a valuable part of the church. Every believer becomes involved with the body. No one gets a free ride. And 
I don't know how big the Lone Ranger is now, but I grew How many of you watched the Lone Ranger when you were a kid? Yeah. You still do. <laughs> there are no Lone Rangers in the church. There are no Lone Ranger Christians. I just really enjoy celebrating my Christianity by going out into the woods and, and just being by myself. Hey, there's a scriptural basis for that. That's what Jesus did to go pray. How would you feel physically if, if your right arm, and I'm saying right arm because most people are right-handed, just decided to go spend an afternoon all by itself? It's a little bit like spraining your ankle. That's where I'm at. My left ankle says, yeah, I'm going to do something on my own. Oh, great. Every believer is connected to every believer. We're part of a body. God designed the church to function like the human body. We see this in Scripture. We know from 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12 especially, but in other places as well, that true worship involves being connected to the body of Christ. Every part of the body is important and vital to the overall health of the body. It's true. I have limped enough for the past three days that it's not as much as just my ankle hurting, but now I have a a source, it's somebody's nodding. Okay. I hurt on the right side too. My back hurts. I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. Every part is valuable, every part is important to the, the vital health of this, this thing we call the body of Christ, the church. It doesn't matter how young you are in Christ, and it doesn't matter how old you are in Christ. A true believer loves the body of Christ and seeks ways of glorifying God by serving the church. Oh, now, okay, now y'all went, click. Oh, he's after getting us to serve in the nursery. Well, yeah, I am, but... <laughs> no, actually, what I'm wanting more than anything is for this group of believers to go, you know what? The most important thing is that Jesus Christ is glorified with who I am. And the best way I can glorify Christ is to be connected to the body of Christ. And I will do anything for the body of Christ. It isn't just a motivation to get you to do more stuff. It's so that you will glorify God. Wow. That's all that's all that really matters. That's what we talk about a bit. Worship. Worship isn't just singing. Beautiful music this morning. Wonderful. Music and worship aren't synonyms. Because we also worship because we pass the plate. We also worship because we partook of communion. We're also worshiping simply because we're here gathered together in this room. We're also worshiping because you're hearing some black-hearted, wretched sinner preach. 
a true believer loves the body of Christ. This is one of the transformations. A true believer seeks ways to glorify God by serving his body. Let's see how this works. Verse 24. This connects these things together. It connects holding on to our confession of hope with how we function in the body. It says in verse 24, And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Consider. Right there in verse 24, right at the beginning. That word means to think about. Okay? That's easy enough. To focus on. It also means to study deeply and to let your mind be occupied with whatever it is you're considering. Consider, okay, so we're going to think deeply and we're going to have our mind occupied with stimulating one another. You know, there's some people in the world that really stimulate me. Why are you laughing? Maybe you're one of those people. That's me. The object that we are to consider is one another, those within the body of Christ. The love of the believer for other believers is acted out as we are occupied with stimulating brothers and sisters. I love the word stimulate. It comes from a Greek term, term meaning literally to irritate. Don't you just love it? So you heard from your pastor that all of you who are believers are to irritate one another. Done. Good. We can, we can go with that, right? I think we need to dig a little deeper. Because it also has to do, it's connected with the idea of sharpening. It's used grammatically and contextually in verse 24 to mean to continually work at something. To continually work at, in this case, encouraging loving actions within the body of Christ. So, let's concentrate just a little bit on this stimulation, this irritation idea. I, I really enjoy working in the wood shop. And one of the most difficult things for a woodworker is getting the tools sharp. Having an edge on a chisel or a knife, whatever, that is what is really, in some ways, the most difficult. If it's not sharp, it isn't going to help you. So I, I like to think of the idea behind stimulation that's referred to in this passage and in this Greek term as like sharpening a tool. So I'll take a tool, let's say it's a, a chisel, and I take the chisel over to what? A grinding stone. And what does that stone do? It irritates that metal. <laughs> That's irritating. It's, just, it's pulling off little pieces of metal. Until it's polished and you have an edge. And then it's more useful. You see, the whole idea of this, this idea 
of stimulating is to produce something that's sharp, that's ready for work, that does what it's supposed to do. It, it irritates the steel to be sharpened. Little by little, the steel is removed. It's the same idea that Solomon spoke of in Proverbs 27, 17. Iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. This is life within the church. The stimulation of one another is a tremendous definition of the practical working out of agape love within the church. I don't choose to irritate Zach just because he's a young, college-educated dude that I want to irritate. Plus, he's tall. Ish. No, I want to be kind of an irritant to him because I want him to grow in his stature in the, the, the things of God. I want him to become more like Christ. It's an act of agape love. Is that how we treat one another? It's a practical working out. Now, there are some people who just like to be irritating. Just to be irritating. And if any men are looking at their wives, you need to stop it. Love and good deeds or good works. They go together. And this whole idea goes together. And they occur in the the normal fellowship of the church. It says in verse 25, not forsaking our own assembling together as it is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. And I think in Hebrews, those believers that this letter was written to, they were, they, were, they were walking away from the church. They were walking away from the truth that was provided through Christ. They were walking away from that and going back to Judaism. They were returning to what really didn't work. And the author of Hebrews is encouraging them to pursue opportunities of getting together and encouraging one another and building one another up in Christ. Usually, the word encourage carries with it the meaning of calling to one side, to comfort, exhort, teach, help. And the coming alongside connects the encouragement to stimulating. Why? It's out of our love for Christ. Do you love Jesus? And this is what we do. This active love of building up and encouraging comes alongside. We're coming alongside to continually be in the practice of believing. It's the practice. It says, all the more as you see the day drawing near. And in the context of Hebrews, that could mean the destruction of Jerusalem, which would totally changed Judaism. Their entire religious system would change because the temple would be gone. And that translation works. But I also believe, because this is also for us, that this is the idea of the coming of Christ. Every moment that we live, we come one moment closer to the time that Jesus will come back. Are we looking forward to that time? And while we wait for that time, what are we doing? Jesus is coming back, and until he comes back, his church is to be consumed with loving each other, stimulating each other. It was hard for those believers to leave Judaism 
But the writer is stressing one of the best ways of remaining steadfast to the things of God is to be in fellowship with other believers. Your church needs you. For us to live as followers of Christ and to continue to grow into the image of our Savior, Jesus Christ, is to be with Jesus' people, other followers of Christ. We've been placed into the body. We've been immersed into the body of Christ. And Scripture is clear that the body of Christ is the church. Therefore, every believer has been placed into the church to minister. Everyone in here, you're a minister. You're here to meet people's needs, to love other believers and represent the kingdom of God in every area of life. I want you to stand. Everybody stand. If you're able to stand, stand. You able to stand, brother? (laughs) And I want you to turn around or turn beside, and I want you to say you are a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now add one other thing to it. Tell that person or another person that you represent the kingdom of God. You may be seated. Thank you. Serving other believers because of our devotion to Christ is the natural way believers fulfill the new covenant. Every one of you here is a minister of the kingdom of God a representative of God himself. Yeah, there are some who are called to what we call full-time ministry, okay? Usually they're called pastors or ministers. But there's a biblical thing we've got to grasp with that. And that is made clear in Ephesians 4.12, where it's made clear that the role of pastors, teachers, is to do something to the body of Christ. It says, 4.12, The role that Zach and I play, pastors, teachers, is to equip. It says equipping the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. What are we here for? Our good looks. Good luck. We're here to help you minister to one another and minister to the community that we live in. Every believer has been placed into the church to minister and meet people's needs. The pattern of the New Testament church was for each believer to be in ministry. Listen to these words from Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 3. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. For just as we have many members in one body, and all members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. If prophecy, according to the proportion of his faith. If service, in his serving. Or he who teaches, in his teaching. Or he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. 
That's Romans 12. You see almost exactly the same kind of idea in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Ministry of every believer should include communicating the truth of the gospel to anyone we encounter so that they can understand what Christ has done and come to Him as a Savior. That's something that every believer does. Every believer should also minister to other believers by meeting physical, emotional, and financial needs. Why can I say that? Well, we're to be like Jesus, right? That's what Jesus did. So should we. There are great needs within the church. The greater church, think about our brothers and sisters in Texas. God forbid that it ever happens here. Do you pray for them? They're part of the body of Christ, your body. What about the Christians in the Middle East? Do you care? They hurt. They're persecuted. Sometimes to death. Everywhere we go, we represent the kingdom of God. There isn't anything greater than that. Is there? Every believer is to minister to the body, the believers. There are many needs within the church. Here at FBC, we have needs in many areas. One of them is the nursery. (laughs) You knew I'd get around to that. There's small group facilitation. I mean, if we're going to actually do this stuff and, and look for opportunities to be irritating to one another spiritually, we need to have opportunities to do it. Small groups are great for that. We have needs in youth and children's ministry. We have needs in music and technology, counseling, encouragement, and others. The pattern that has been established in the church is that all of those things are done by those that are paid. You know what? I don't do well in the nursery. Sorry. Give me a middle school, high school student, I do real good, but five minutes in the nursery and I'm a raving lunatic. Little kids are cute. I like to talk with the older kids. God is doing some amazing things in this church. The children's ministry, wow. What goes on downstairs, wow. If you don't understand the wow, then you need to go down and you need to at least sit through and watch what's going on with the next generation. God is doing something on Wednesday nights. It wasn't all that long ago that Wednesday nights, FBC fed 90, somewhere in there. It wasn't just our regular group. My goodness. I'm going to rag on our associate pastor a little bit more. Very often on Thursday mornings, he comes into the office and, I don't know why I do this. I'm not helping anybody. Ryan, am I right? 
Yeah, okay. And I remember one time, and he's, he's, he thought, I'm not helping anybody. He's going down that path. And I said, so how many were there last night? And he said, I don't know, 35, 40, whatever it was. So how many of those are involved in the church or following Jesus? Oh, maybe half. So half of the group last night heard the gospel? Oh, yeah. Then you need to stop whining. I don't know if all of you are aware of how many people, maybe not directly involved with a Sunday morning service or some ministry of the church, of FBC. I'm talking about First Baptist Church. How many people came to Christ in 2019? We don't really have a knowledge of exactly, but there was a bunch of people who came to Christ. It doesn't get better than that. We should dance. Make y'all get up and dance. There he goes. Okay. There are great needs. We have a lot of, lot of things going on with music. We need, we need musicians. Technology. You know, why, why do we have these guys just burning themselves out back there? Counseling, encouragement, and there's many others. The reality is that every one of us has been placed in the body of Christ to help the body of Christ. We share in the life. If you are a believer, you're in Christ's body, and as a part of the body, I wonder, do you love Christ? I mean, really, seriously, do you love him? Is that what really excites you about existing? Is the fact that you belong to Jesus Christ and for all of eternity you're going to be in his presence. Is that what winds your clock up every day? And if that is who you are, if you're a lover of Christ, then do you also love his body? Who? That might mean I have to step out of my comfort zone. That might mean I have to take something on that I'm not familiar with. That might mean I have to be seen. Or not. I know some people who serve in this body and they're never seen. Love you and you know who you are. If you're a believer, you're Christ's body. The question then that I ask you as we begin this year is, as a member of the body of Christ, one who loves Jesus because of what Jesus did, does your life, your lifestyle, demonstrate that? I believe we can make a very strong biblical argument that that lifestyle of love of Christ's body happens with believers first.
Is the body of Christ the priority in your life? Now, that may sound like a New Year's resolution. But if we're believers, it's not a resolution. It's a fact. It's how we live. Jesus died for us. He rose from the dead for us. He sits at the right hand of the throne of God, superior over everything for us, with the ultimate goal of God being glorified. And so really, this is a call for those of us to believe to be all about making God get bigger and us get smaller. Let's be about the business of glorifying God in how we irritate one another to love him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you have given us life in your Son. I ask, Father God, that you help us in that life to find ways of demonstrating it practically to one another. Holy Spirit, stir up in us a desire to consciously choose to build one another up in Christ. Spirit of God, you dwell in every believer. I thank you that you come alongside and you instruct and you encourage and you draw out of us more than we would ever know because you're God. Change us. Use us. Give ourselves to you, Father. Thank you, Jesus, that in your superiority we have access into the throne room of heaven. Now, Father, take us from this place and use us. We yield to you because we love you. In your son's precious name, amen.